I used to love that song growing up. I used to picture myself in a big old ship sailing through the air. Then I found out it was being metaphorical, so it, was, it just kind of was sad. Hey, are you glad to be in church this morning? Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for being here this morning. God, we thank you for being here with us. And we pray that as we uh, continue on in our worship service, uh, God, that you would just speak to us as we look in your word, God. We know uh, that life is hard and that things change, Father, but your word never changes. God, and we pray this morning that you would just speak to our hearts through the unchanging, unfailing word of your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So, how's it going this week? That good, huh? It's been a great week for everybody. It's awesome. Uh, no, man, I'm, I'm telling you what, it, it seems like this has been a tough month, doesn't it? I'm telling you, I mean, just, uh, you know, I've been, I've talked with several people, and it's just been a tough month for a lot of people. I know, um, I was talking with Howell, and it said the funeral home here, Mayo, is what had six funerals since the end of December. Man, it's been a, been a tough month, hasn't it? We've been talking a lot this month about uh, refocusing. And, and um, you know, I think that's something that, you know, God calls us all to from time to time. I, I was talking with some pastors, um, uh, and, you know, and, and I'll just say this. I won't name any names, but there's a church around here um, that every now and then we go to for meetings and whatnot. And I've been here for five, going on six years now. Um, and, and I've been at this church a few times. And, you know, do you all remember the, like, numbers boards, like the, the old scoreboards that you used to put up on the back of the church? You know, like Sunday morning attendance, offering, those kind of things? That's a, that's a scoreboard in a Baptist church, right? Um, and, and it sat on there, you know, it was Sunday school attendance last Sunday, Sunday school attendance this Sunday, and then at the very top thing said Sunday school enrollment. And I'm telling you what, I've been to this church like three times. And I don't think those numbers really ever changed. It was like Sunday school enrollment, 32. Sunday school attendance last Sunday, 32. Sunday school attendance this Sunday, 32. And then I was like, oh. Came back. Sunday school attendance, or uh, uh, Sunday school enrollment, 32. Sunday school attendance last Sunday, 32. Sunday school attendance this Thursday, 32. Like, great day. Then went back and it was like Sunday school enrollment, 32. Sunday school uh, attendance last Sunday, 32. Sunday school attendance this Sunday, 31. Somebody was in trouble. <laughs> you know? And I look at that, we joke about that, say, you know, they, if nothing else, that church is incredibly faithful. And, and, and you know, I got to thinking about that, you know, and it seems like with a young church that, you know, we have a lot of ups and downs. Have you ever noticed that? How we'll have a crowd full for a couple months and then be down for a month. And have a bunch of people, then down. And I'm telling you, I've got this conclusion, and I don't know if it's right, but I suspect that when some of you get ready to miss church, you call up everybody and say, hey, let's all miss church together this Sunday. It's going to be so much fun. And uh, I don't, do you guys do that? Apparently by the dumb looks I'm getting, that's a no, okay? Didn't know if it was like senior skip day in high school. Y'all decided, and I'm telling you, when, every, when somebody's gone, almost everybody's gone. And it's like up and down and up and down and up and down. And, I, you know, that used to really discourage me until I remembered that if you look at an EKG, those ups and downs at least let you know that you're alive, Right? And so that's, you know, what I think. You know, we have ups and downs, and we're going to as a church. But I think that it's times, special times, that we need to set aside where God calls us to refocus back on what's really important. 
And this month we've been going through uh, the book of Isaiah, not as each chapter, but just kind of taking different passages out of the book of Isaiah. We looked the first week at Isaiah chapter 1 when God basically tells the children of Israel, I'm sick of your festivals, I'm sick of your offerings, don't burn incense anymore, it makes me nauseous, I just wish that you would stop. And, And we talked about how sometimes we can come to the point in our lives where we just do what we do because that's what we do. And we lose the real sense of why we do what we do. And so I told you, I want to set aside this month for us to get our focus back on God. Not on church, not on this, not on that, but focus back on our relationship with God. And then two weeks ago, we talked about repentance. And we looked in Isaiah again and saw that God says, In repentance and rest, you'll find strength. And we think about repentance and rest. We don't all the time put those two together. But God tells us that when we learn to rest in the sufficiency of who Christ is and who we are in Him, that's when we find true repentance. I said we just need to repent of trying so much. You know, we do this, we do that, we put on a good show, but deep down our hearts are far from God. So we've been talking about refocusing and repentance and this week we want to talk about revival because you know that tonight we start up our tri-church countywide revival. Uh, be tonight, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Um, I'll go ahead. We'll, I'll fill you on details later on. But man, I encourage you be back here tonight, please. Somebody was tell, asking me, said Chip, do you think we'll have a good crowd here tonight since nobody comes on win- on Sunday nights? And I took up for you, right? Because you know I don't beat you over the head about coming back on Sunday night. I figure if you want to come back on Sunday night, you'll be back on Sunday night. If not, that's between you and God. Okay, I'm not gonna guilt you about that. But I said because I do uh, not beat them over the head when I ask them to come back for something special. Most of them do come back. So I'm asking you as a special event tonight as we're having to try church revival would you please come back tonight so that we can celebrate together as three different churches uniting under the uh, gospel of Christ to experience revival together it's going to be at 6 30 it's going to be here um, I invite you to come back I'll tell you more about it later um, but we're getting ready to do these revivals and so I'm asking myself this question how many of you have said and this isn't a specific question but I did I said how many of you have said the word revival this week anybody don't be ashamed anybody I, I, none of you knew. Or yeah, I think we're having. How many said? I think we're having revival Sunday night. Anybody said that? Anybody used the word revival? Thank you, all twelve of you. You're so awesome. You get an extra sticker on your Sunday school sheet. And I, we we say revival, and I think a few times we talk about revival. But here's the question, okay? What is revival? What is revival? Now that seems up front like a very easy question to answer, right? Oh, we get to church, we have an evangelist, we do special services. Revival is when we have church on Monday and Tuesday night. But truthfully, most of us who are sitting in here today, me included, most of us have never seen or experienced a true biblical revival. I think that's a safe statement to make. I know I haven't. You know, I've grown up in church my whole life, but I've never been in a church that really experienced revival. We put revivals on the calendar, we schedule them, we have this tri-church revival. But I think truth be told, if we were really honest with ourselves, you would have to tell me, Chip, I've never even seen a revival. I know I haven't. So what is a revival? I wrote this down. This is my definition. This is the CPV, Chip Parker version, definition of what revival is. True revival is a special move of God among his people 
where the lost get saved and the saved are called to repentance and holiness. True revival is a special move of God among his people where the lost get saved and the saved are called to holiness and repentance. Say, Chip, doesn't that happen every Sunday? Kind of, but this is a special move of God. I'm talking about it's when people flood the altar, lost people get saved in droves, Christians come, and just there's an outpouring of repentance and holiness. I was in seminary at Liberty University. I did it online, and while I was there, you were reading some of the history of Liberty, and and they said that back in the early 1990s, they had revival break out on Liberty. What it was, it was a Wednesday night student prayer meeting. All the students got in the chapel, and they're praying. And this kid comes to the microphone to pray. And when he does, God just moves upon his heart. I'm telling you, he just started confessing sin in his life. Just God just convicted his heart. He could not bear the hypocrisy of leading that group in prayer and having that sin in his heart. And so he just began to confess. And they said that kids, just as he began to confess, they'd come down to the altar and they started confessing. That, and they said it just spread from there. Other people would come to the microphone and they would pray. Uh, kids were just falling at the altars and just weeping before God because they're sin. Now, these are kids at Christian college. They said that that revival lasted all through the night, that there were, teenage, that there were college students who just fell asleep in the pews and then woke back up and went right back to praying. They said that lasted for over two weeks. Non-stop praying in that chapel, non-stop repenting in that chapel. And I've never seen that. But I'm going to tell you something I have learned. There can be no real revival without a realization and repentance from sin. In order for you to experience revival in your life, in the life of this church, two things that has to happen. Number one, we have to realize that we're sinners. And I'm going to tell you, as your pastor, I think that's going to require a special move of God for some of us. <laughs> right? Number two, after we realize we're sinners, we have to be broken by that sin, fall on our face before God and repent. We talk about revival, it's fun, it's cool, it's neat, whatever. There can be no revival without the realization of and repentance from sin. This month we've already talked about refocusing, we've talked about repentance, and today as we talk about revival, it's just the next step in the process. I truly believe that God wants to bring revival to our church. He wants to move upon the people in this church and in this county in a special way. But it will not come without you submitting yourself to God. Now as we talk today, I'm going to go ahead and say this. I said it a couple weeks ago and I'll say it again. We've already said the altar is open all month this month. You don't have to wait for me to give the invitation. I truly believe if revival breaks out, uh, you'll know it because there'll be people coming to the altar before the invitation and you'll know it has to be revival because there's not a person in this room who would be caught dead stepping out while the pastor's preaching coming to this altar. But let me tell you, if God gets hold of your heart, don't wait. Okay, that's just my, my encouragement to you. If God gets hold of your heart, don't wait. Today what we're going to do is I intend us to be in the book of Isaiah this month, um, but God just relayed this message on my heart. We're going to be in Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter, and next week we'll come back to Isaiah. Um, Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at a, a message directly from God that was sent to a people who were in desperate need of revival. Um, it's a fairly long passage of scripture. We're going to be dealing with almost the whole chapter today. So I won't have you stand um, and we'll read it together. But what I will ask you to do, if you would, just right there in your seat, um, would you just bow your head, make a little altar, like right there in your seat, and let's just ask God to speak to us through his word this morning. 
Heavenly Father, God, that's just my prayer, as simple as it is, that you would speak to our hearts this morning through your word. God, bring us realization of our sin. Bring us repentance of our sin. Help us to submit to you so that we may experience true revival. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While you're turning there, Ezekiel chapter 33. If you've got your Bible, if you open it up to the halfway point, Ezekiel's going to be a little bit to the right of the halfway point. Um, let me give you a little bit of background about Ezekiel and his ministry. Ezekiel was 25 years old. So I'm a year older than Ezekiel was uh, when he was taken into captivity. Ezekiel lived uh, in Judah uh, for his, most of his life. Judah was the southern part of Israel. Um, he grew up there. He was a family of, his family was a family of priests. He was from the tribe uh, of Levi. And when he was 25 years old, the Babylonian Empire came and took him captive. Now, they didn't capture all of Israel, but when he was 25, he and his family, he was married at that time, his wife, got taken away to Babylon uh, in captivity. Now you understand captivity there was captivity, uh, but it wasn't like we think of it today. It wasn't like that they were in you know a prison camp. They were they were more like colonists. However, they weren't allowed the freedoms they were allowed back home. Uh, they were under this Babylonian captivity, and, and most importantly, they were out of the promised land. See, God had promised the nation of Israel that little piece of land that we call Israel today, and said that's going to be your land, and that's the the promised land that I've given to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so anytime God's people were taken off of that land, they always wanted to get back. And you know, we, I, I think about that. It always seems like Israel's always been there. But many of you remember the time when Israel was actually made a nation and the Jews returned to Israel. So it's not like they've always been there. Matter of fact, a lot of Israel's history is them being taken away and then sent back. Taken away and sent back. And at 25 years old, Ezekiel gets taken out away from his home in southern Israel. At 30 years, at 30 years old, Ezekiel receives a call on his life. 30 years is the year uh, that the priest would begin their priestly ministry. So being of a tribe of Levi, Ezekiel became a priest at age 30. But also at age 30, he received the call uh, to be a prophet. And so what Ezekiel did as living in captivity began to preach to the people the word of God. And we think of prophet, and, we, and when, you say, when you hear prophecy, how many of you think of God saying something that's going to happen in the future, like God predicting the future? When I say prophecy, you think prediction of the future. Raise your hand. Probably most of us. Most biblical prophecy is actually simply saying what the Bible has said and the fact that you're not doing it. Right? So when we read prophecy, prophecy is basically like, uh, a prophet's like an Old Testament cop. He says, here's God's law, you're not doing it, here's the ticket. Right? That's kind of what Ezekiel was. Um, many false prophets in Ezekiel's time began to preach to the people, okay, we're not going to be here in Babylon long. It's not going to be too long before we go back to Judah. And so they're expecting, you know, this isn't going to be long. It's going to be a little while. Uh, but that wasn't the case. Um, Ezekiel had two prophets who were around the same time as him. You might know about Jeremiah and Daniel. You ever heard those two names? Both of them have a book of the Bible named after them. They all were together in the same area. And all these false prophets were saying, Oh, this isn't going to last long. We're going to be back home. This is just a vacation. Kick back, enjoy yourself. And Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah were saying, No, this is God's judgment on a sinful people. We are here and we're going to be here for a while. And so the first half of Ezekiel's book is just simply judgments from God on the nation of Israel and the other surrounding countries. So if you start in Ezekiel chapter 1 and you keep reading, it's just like God saying, you did this, this is going to happen. You did this, this is going to happen. You did this, this is going to happen. But starting in chapter 34, Ezekiel takes a very different tone. 
Ezekiel starts to talk about the fact that God is a faithful God and that he is going to restore the nation of Israel to their former glory and he is going to redeem them and bring them back into the promised land. So it's really weird. Uh, up to chapter 32, it's all doom and gloom and judgment. Up to chapter 34 and on, it's hope and faithfulness of restoration. How many of you know the most famous prophecy in Ezekiel uh, about a valley of dry bones? Remember that? Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, right? You know, that, that's Ezekiel, that pro- restoration. But it's judgment, restoration. And right there in the middle is chapter 33. Okay? Here's what happens. Say, Chip, why do I need to know this? Here's why you need to know this. Because in chapter 33, something happens that Ezekiel had prophesied. This was actually him saying this is going to happen in the future, and it did. He said that there would be a messenger who would come to the people in captivity and tell them that Jerusalem had fallen. And in Ezekiel 33, that's exactly what happens. If you keep looking at the last half of Ezekiel 33, you see that a messenger comes and says that Jerusalem had fallen, all of Judah had been taken captive. Now what that meant to the people who were there is that we are going to be here a while. The false prophets who'd been saying this is going to be quick, no. If Jerusalem was done, we're done. So they get this really bad news. And so you think, well, how come it went from judgment to restoration because of bad news? I believe it's because in chapter 33, while God's people are at their lowest, they're broken by their sin, God gives for them the way to revival. Start reading with me. In Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be in his own head. Look up. What's happening here is Ezekiel is using a concept uh, that the people are really familiar with. They, uh, uh, most cities uh, in the Middle East during that time uh, had high walls around them. And you would have watchmen on those walls. They would stand up in a tower and their job would be to keep watching the distance. Because like in Ezekiel's day, if you were going to war, you weren't going to have a cruise missile just come out of nowhere and blow you up, right? You'd be able to see the armies marching, the armies coming. Uh, from a long ways away, you could see the dust rising. You could see them coming. So when the watchman would see the opposing enemy army uh, or danger coming he would start to blow the trumpet and when he blew the trumpet that meant hey it's time to get ready because war is coming and so God takes this analogy which it would almost be like how many of you ever been to the beach and heard the storm warning go off right it's kind of like that same thing you know it's saying hey storms coming get ready so God takes that analogy and he uses it to Israel and watch what he does with this keep reading and verse 5 said, He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself, but had he taken warning, he would have delivered his life. He says, if you hear this coming, and you just keep living your life like normal, and the army comes and you get killed, it's your fault you were warned. 
Verse 6. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Says, hey, if you hear the trumpet come, or if you don't hear the trumpet coming, then all of a sudden somebody comes, an army comes, and you're killed, but you never heard the warning, I'm going to require your blood from the hands of the watchman. It's his fault he didn't blow the horn. Now look at what he does here in verse 7 to Ezekiel. Now as for you, son of man, talking about Ezekiel, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. Okay? So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them warning for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die. And you do not speak to him to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you on your part warn a wicked man to turn from his wicked way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. So what he does is he takes this passage, this very familiar idea, and says, Ezekiel, okay, you are the watchman over Israel. Judgment was coming, and I told you to blow the trumpet. And what Ezekiel's saying here in chapter 33 is that I did. Okay? He's saying that's what the whole first half of this book was. I told you, I told you, I told you that if you kept living in sin, God was going to bring judgment. And he did. Okay? Now, before we move on, I want to clear up something really, really simple right here. Now, I want you to notice that this passage focuses on the watchman, not the people being warned. Do you see that? Look there um, again in, in, verse, uh, in verse 8. The middle part says, You do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. What does it say? The wicked man shall what? Die in his iniquity. Say that with me. Shall die in his iniquity. Look at verse 9. But if you do warn him from away and he does not turn from his way, what does it say? He will die. Say it with me. Come on, be awake. Say, he will die in his iniquity. So look at this. In both instances, the wicked man does what? Die in his iniquity. So what it's not saying is if you're never warned, then you get a free pass when you die. Okay? Because if that was the case, then you're doing nothing but hurting yourself by being in church today. Right? You say, okay, okay, now you've heard, now you're responsible. If you'd have went home and went, la, 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 and you'd not heard, then you were good to go, right? It wasn't your fault. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage clearly says the wicked man will die in his iniquity. It's not talking about him yet. It's talking about the watchman. In the Old Testament, the prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, Amos, Dan you know, all these prophets... They essentially functioned as watchmen. They said, I see the judgment of God coming on wicked people, and it's my job to blow the trumpet. Now, in the New Testament, when we hear the word pastor, we normally think of the priest. The priest and the pastor are the same thing. No. The prophet and the pastor serve the same role. In the Old Testament, the prophet's job was to declare the word of God and say, you better watch out. In the New Testament, it's the pastor's job to declare the word of God. 
and say, watch out. So when we read this passage, essentially this passage is telling me that when you see trouble coming, when you see God's people running away from, the, running away from him, you've got to say something or it's your fault. Okay? So I say that to say this. Here's where I am. I see us as a church today satisfied with things that we should not be satisfied with. I see us tolerating things that we should never tolerate. And I see us complacent in a state where we should never be complacent. I see a church so full of potential, but yet so easily bogged down with the little things in life. Now here's the deal. I don't tell you this and expect you to come and fall on your face and weep before God. I pray that happens, but I don't expect it. You know, I was talking uh, this weekend with some friends, and I told them, say, you know what, it'd be foolish of me to think that every Sunday I came in that I preached the best message you ever heard, and people were weeping and crying and ripping their clothes. Oh, you know, I can't expect that every week. I hope every now and then God moves in a special way. But for the most part, I'm going to come in, I'm going to preach, and if I'm lucky, like two or three of you will say, man, that was for me. But the most part of you, it won't. So, so should I get discouraged and say, well, I should quit? No. Because this half of the passage speaks directly to me. It says, Chip, you've got to be faithful to warn the people. And so what I feel like this month is, I feel like this is a warning, guys. Hey, we are, we are so, so, so blessed by God. And I'm telling you, I see it. We are that close to throwing it away because of nothing but simple complacency. We'd say, Chip, you know, I might do this, I might do that, but that's not as bad as somebody else. No. We are satisfied with things that should never satisfy us. And we tolerate things that should not be tolerated. And we are complacent in a state of being that we should be utterly dissatisfied with. And so I'm here to warn you. Keep reading in this passage. Verse 10, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions, This is what the people of Israel are saying to God, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? God, the people of Israel are saying, God, what can I do? You know, I'm a sinner. I, I, I'm going to sin. You know, what am I supposed to do? Maybe you're thinking, Chip, what are we supposed to do? We're trying the best we can. What's the deal? Is our best not good enough? How many of you have ever felt like somebody told you that even though you're trying, your trying wasn't good enough and how'd that make you feel? Maybe a little bit ticked? Maybe a little bit depressed? That's what the nation of Israel says. They say, God, what are we supposed to do? Look at verse 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Look at this. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God says, listen. 
I don't take any pleasure in bringing judgment upon my people, but I will if I have to. So if God says, if I had my perfect will working in your life, then you would turn to me and live. And they're still saying, but God, we're trying so hard. Verse 12. This is where I think God really brings it down to our level. And you say, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, the righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. Did you see that? The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his iniquity. Whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. What's that verse saying? Saying two things that I bet you've heard before. Saying number one, no good person is ever good enough. Can we agree with that? No good person is ever good enough. Number two, no bad person is ever too bad to get saved. Okay? And that's what he says. You thought that was just a cliche. That's in the Bible. He goes on, verse 13. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live. And so he trusts in his righteousness and he commits iniquity. None of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same iniquity of his which he's committed, read those next three words. He will die. Say, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on, God? You're saying that the righteous man, if he lives righteously, is going to die? Essentially what God's saying. So how is that possible? I thought if I did the right things, if I, if I said the right words, if I, if I did everything right, then I'd be good with God. Isn't that essentially what the Old Testament teaches? The Old Testament says if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, and if you do this, then you'll be right with God. But God says you are missing the point. We think that we're righteous. I want you to look at one other passage with me. You can turn there if you want. Uh, Malachi chapter 1. I'm just going to read a few of these verses, not all of them, um, because we don't have time. Look at this. This is God talking to the people of Israel in verse 7. He says, you are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. Verse 8. When you present the blind for a sacrifice. Now listen, now you listen to this. Matter of fact, if you've got a different translation and if it bothers you trying to re- tell the difference between, just read this up here because I want you to pay close attention to this. Okay, Verse 8. It was just on the screen. Verse 8. But when you present the blind for a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he, would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now, will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there is one among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. You know that passage who God's talking to? 
He's talking to priests. He says, you think that because you do this, this, and this, that you're okay, that you're righteous. He said, but if you were to really take a hard look at yourself, you would see that what you were doing is not what you think. He says, you think that you're offering these great sacrifices to me. But you look at those sacrifices. Would you give them to your governor? Would he be satisfied with that? He says, no, if you give him that same kind of sacrifice you tried to give God, he'd take your head off because that would be disrespect. He says, you think that you're doing this the right way, but God says, I'm tired of it. I just wish that you'd shut the gates, close church. This is what God says. Let's put it in, in a way uh, that relates to us while still being faithful for the passage. God says, if you put in my offering plate, or if you give to somebody else what you put in my offering plate, they'd laugh at you. What you put in my house, you'd never allow in your house. The standard that you hold for in my house, you'd never allow that same standard of living in your house. He says, this is it. I wish you'd quit having church. Just go home. Just shut the doors. Don't come back next Sunday. That's what God's saying. God says, if you think that what you're doing is helping me out, if you think what you're doing is making me happy, if you think that you're doing anything anything, anything that's good and perfect and applause-worthy, then you've missed the point. Shut the doors. The reason that when we hear, when the righteous lives by the righteous, he'll surely die, the reason that that doesn't make sense to us is this, is because we say, I'm righteous, what am I doing wrong? But the problem is, you're not righteous. You're not. Keep looking at this passage. Ezekiel, verse 14. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he's taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed will be remembered against him, but he has practiced justice and righteousness, and he shall surely live. You want to tell you, you may tell you, we'll just fast forward because we're running out of time. We're going to fast forward right here. Let me tell you what the biggest irony in this whole passage is. It's God never offers a way for the righteous to be saved. Now, if we had time, I'd walk you through that passage, but I encourage you to do it on your own. You look through that passage. God never offers a way for the righteous to be saved. The only people, he says, will be saved are the wicked. Are you so sure you want to be in the righteous category right now? Right? I mean, before this, if I'd ask you, hey, would you rather be righteous or wicked? 99 out of 100 of you would have said, I want to be righteous. And the one who said I wanted to be wicked would be a three-year-old trying to make me mad. Right? No, we all want to be righteous. But when we look at this, God says, the righteous, there's no hope for you. The wicked, though, if you'll turn, you'll live. The truth is, if we want to experience a move of God on our lives, He has to get us to a place that He can work with us. Because if we're righteous, then we don't need Him. Jesus put it this way. He said, it's not the well who need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. Chip, what's the point of this? You might say, 
Well, what then? Does this passage teach that everything we do, you know, we've got to change the way we live to be saved? Because isn't that what it says? You know, if the wicked will just change the way he lives, he'll live. So is that what it's teaching? Is it teaching that if I do the right things? No, that's not what it's teaching. And I'm going to draw your attention as we close, as we close. That's like, you know, a Baptist preacher saying as we close. Whatever, that doesn't matter. Verse 15. I want you to look at one verse. First verse, or first word. If. Do you see that? If. If. He's saying, if a wicked man will turn from his wickedness and go back and repay everything he's done wrong, then he'll live. So here's the deal. If you want to be saved by what you do, then what you need to do is go back and correct everything you've ever done wrong. Okay? If you've, taken, if you've stolen money, pay it back. If you've taken something that wasn't yours, give it back. If you said a harsh word, apologize. If you've ever cheated on your taxes, <laughs> it's January, isn't it? <laughs> Write a check to the government. If you want to be saved because of what you do, then you go back and you repay everything that you've ever done wrong. How many is ready to sign up for that? Right? Truth be told, I can't remember everything I'd done wrong yesterday, much less 10 years ago. Right? I'm sure if I asked Leanne, she'd have a whole lot bigger list of what I did wrong than what I thought I did wrong. Amen? <laughs> right? No, this passage isn't teaching that you need to change the way you live to be saved. This passage says that you can't go back and repay all the wrong that you've done. There's no way. It says, if you can pay for your sins. But the truth is that we can't. The only one who could ever provide payment for our sins is the one who never sinned. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. What this passage teaches is that if you're righteous, then you don't need salvation. Just on the day of judgment, you just defend yourself. It's not going to turn out well. But if you acknowledge that you're wicked, then God says, then I can provide payment for you. You can always tell a person's heart by how they respond when they're attacked. If a person, when they're attacked, feels that they're righteous, then man will bow up. You don't know about me. I've done this, this, and this. But if a person, when they're attacked, kind of lowers their head and says, there might be some truth to that, you can tell where their heart is. On the day of judgment, what I'm afraid is going to happen is that God's going to point a finger at you and say, you've done this, you've done this, and you've done this. And some of us will bow up our chest and say, but I went to church. I taught Sunday school. I put money in the offering plate. You don't understand everything I've done. And God says, I do understand everything you've done. And that's exactly why you shall depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because I never knew you. My prayer is, is that on the day of judgment, 
when God points his finger at you and says, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this, then you will just bow your head before him and say, God, I know that I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And the moment that you cease trying to defend yourself, the greatest defense the world's ever known, the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and incarnate, will walk in and say, they may have done that, but I've already paid for it. They're on my tab. Let them in. And Jesus Christ will look at you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. That's the irony of the scriptures. That's the irony of God. That's the irony of revival. That the righteous will die and the wicked will live. So here's my message to you. If you want to experience revival, quit being righteous. Remember that you're wicked. I don't know who taught us, but somewhere along the line, we as church people began to think that the gospel is only for people who need to be saved. But the truth is, the gospel is something that we need to hear and apply to our lives every single day. Said, so just as I am without one plea, I come to him not just then as I am, I come to him now as I am. I'll come to him tomorrow as I am. And each time I come without defense, without boasting, without my righteousness every time I come he'll provide a righteousness for me if you want to experience revival in this church it doesn't start with you telling me how holy you already are it starts with you telling God how wicked you are This is a hard message, but it's not just found in Ezekiel. It's all through the Bible. Nothing that you've done is going to save you on the day of judgment. If you came to Christ and said, here's what I can offer, you've missed the point. Some of you think this message is for me. I need to know Christ. My prayer is that you will. If you've been trying to rely on what you've done to get you into heaven, I I invite you today, you need to come and and just repent of that and say, God, I know I'm not good enough to get into heaven on my own. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. You made payment. Come be the Lord of my life. When you do, he'll forgive you of your sin. But beyond that, where I really want this message to hit home is to those of you who are sitting back right now and saying, glad that message wasn't for me. Because if you ever think that you've moved beyond the need for God's grace and the gospel of Christ, it's you who need to experience it most of all. We're going to have the musicians come forward and then have a time of invitation. If you would, bow your heads as we go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I just pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts. God, I pray now that there are hearts that are breaking. God, that you would break theirs just as you've broken mine. God, that you would let us realize that we are not righteous, that we are wicked, and that we need to come to you daily to experience your grace. Father God, I just pray that you would never let us be those who would seek a righteousness of our own. But we will always... Come seeking the righteousness that you give. Father, if there's those here who need to trust you as Savior, God, I pray that you would do that. Father, I especially pray for those who are here and they're comfortable and they're happy and they're holy. God, show them just who they really are. 
let revival begin when we realize how sinful we are and when we come to repent of it. God, I pray you'd move in this invitation now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.